Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mom and dad are fighting is for grown-ups. Maybe not for little kids. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 6th, the Bickering Grandparents Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 16, and Harper, who's 13. And we live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is, oh my God, I was going to say six, then seven, but no, she's eight, and we live in Los Angeles, California. And I am Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and mom of Harry, who is 12, Sam, who is 10, and Wally, who is eight, and we live in Maplewood, New Jersey. The boys are back in town, boys <laughs> are back in town. Uh, welcome back, Allison. We're so happy to have you here. Welcome thank back. you. Thank you. Thank you. On today's show, we've got a letter from a mom who has just had it with her parents bickering with each other in front of the kids, and now her son has had it too. Can our letter writer broker a truce before it's too late? Then we're joined by Dr. Tova Walsh of the University of Wisconsin to talk about her research into new pandemic moms. How have moms who had babies a year ago coped with a very, very weird first year? Dr. Walsh just completed a study of 30 moms who had babies in March 2020, and she knows whereof she speaks because she's a new mom, too. On Slate Plus, we're talking about berries. Berries! Why are they the only food our children eat? Why are they so expensive? What the hell? But first, triumphs and fails. Allison, what do you have for us on your return to the show? So, my kids... All finally went back to school this week. First time for the two oldest boys. Yeah, since March 2020. So it's been a journey. And the night before, Sunday night, I was a total stress case about like making sure they had everything they had to have in their backpacks. You know, they're at three different schools and the teachers all send different lists of what they need to have. But the main thing that everyone needs to have is a fully charged laptop. So we put the notebooks in the backpack. We put the pencils in the backpack, everything they need. And I just said... I would say 3,024 times, please make sure your computer is charged overnight. But I did not check to make sure their computer was charging overnight. I mean, they're 12 and 10. The youngest one, eight, I charged his computer for him. Anyway, you can see where this is going. Monday morning, we wake up early. I make sure like we're not rushing. I don't want anyone to feel stressed. I don't want anyone to be screaming. And five minutes before Harry, our oldest, needs to leave for school, I hear just like a total meltdown in his room. He had put the charger in the computer, but he had not plugged the charger into the wall. Step two. It's always the one that gets you. 
totally dead. First day back to school in more than a year. Already feeling, I think, pretty nervous because, like, you know, he's in middle school, so they move to different classrooms, and he didn't, you know, he doesn't know where all of his different classrooms are. He was excited to go back, but definitely stressed. And again, the most important thing, and all of his teachers told him, the most important thing is to have a charged computer. So I go upstairs and I say, I'm actually shocked. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I didn't freak out. I just said, it'll be okay. Just pack up your computer. And when you get to first period, tell your teacher what happened, which is your version that your mother didn't charge your computer or you didn't charge your computer. I don't know. (laughs) Tell your teacher what happened. She'll let you plug in. But all the while I'm thinking, I don't really know if that's true because I had heard that there's like, there aren't very many plugs at at school and it's going to be a huge issue. So I'll stop there and I will not tell you how it ended because I feel like the ending could skew things one way or the other. It's an absolute triumph that you didn't fucking lose your mind. That you didn't blow your top. (laughs) Thank you. The question is more, was it a triumph that I didn't micromanage to the point of checking that they actually did what I reminded them to do a thousand times? Or was it a fail that I didn't check to make sure they did the most important thing? I'm inclined to say it's a triumph because, and I I have an eight-year-old only, so I haven't gotten to that age yet, but I find that me continuing to do all the shit for her is not making her better at doing the things herself. So sometimes it's nice for your children to experience consequences from other sources so you don't have to be the bad guy. So it's like, you know, all the things I tell you at home, and I know it may feel like I'm just making up these rules, like plug up your laptop for school just to be a pain in the ass, but really that's the thing that matters. And now you get to see what happens when you don't do it. So I think it's a triumph. Jamila's right that, I mean, the classic parenting wisdom is the more times you do something for a kid, the less likely they are to ever do it for themselves. And in that respect, you know, it's there's, there's no reason to not think that the right thing to do is to remind them, but it's not your job to do the thing. The only way that it seems a little bit faily is just that for the first day of school, you were already managing so many things. You were already like getting their notebooks and getting them into their bags and being like super mom, honestly, that I'm sure it felt to you at the moment a little bit like, well, Jesus, why didn't I do this? The one most important thing everyone said. However, I also think probably it was fine. That's my prediction. Why am I right? You're right. It wasn't this intentional strategy where I was like, I'm going to get everything together. But on this one thing, I'm not going to I'm not going to be overbearing because I've heard you should let your kids fail. I just forgot. But it was fine. It was completely fine. He plugged in first period. And when he got home, he like had forgotten about it. I did remind them again the next night, but I didn't. I also didn't check uh, the second night. So it turned out fine. But um, but it could have been bad, I guess. Did How he bad? Plug in last night. He did. Yeah. Well, see, he He learned. Right. Right. Oh, also, when I did go up when he was freaking out, the thing he was really mad about wasn't that I hadn't checked. It was that he had so many plugs. Like, how was he to know? Like, it's my fault that he has like an Alexa plug and a phone plug. (laughs) Why did you buy me all these devices? Right. Exactly. Uh, Classic. Love it. Jamila, what about you? Trying for a fail. So I have what might be a double fail, but it's also my recommendation is tied up in here. So I bought a package of Go Nana's banana bread mix from Nordstrom Rack. 
Wait, Nordstrom Rack has banana bread mix? I buy all my banana bread mix <laughs> yeah. from Nordstrom Sorry Rack. Sorry to interrupt you. Me too. Oh, okay. I agree that that's weird. It's, it's weird, right? <laughs> but they have like a home section with home things. And like, you know what it is? I think it was where the cookies are. You know, like when you were checking out, there's usually cookies and candy and stuff like that. Like, I think they had some mixes there. And for those of you who are rack shoppers, you know that is a place where you can very easily go, like Target, you can go in for one thing and end up with a bunch of stuff, right? Especially because... There's often times very cheap stuff. So I hadn't been there in a while. I spend maybe $175 total, right? So I had a few bags. Like I'd gotten, you know, a number of things during this purchase. That's important. So we always have overripe bananas because we never eat our bananas on time. So I was like, okay, perfect. We can use them to make this, you know, fake healthy treat that looks very good. And so when I'm finally like, okay, Naima, let's make banana muffins on um, Saturday. She's like, okay. And she kind of like begrudgingly leaves the TV to do it. I'm like, this is a bonding activity. You know, this is important time that we're spending together. And it was really kind of me making it by myself, but it was fine. I look at the back of the bag. This mix costs (laughs) (laughs) $23.97. And for the life of me, I I could not understand how I'd spent $24 on banana bread mix and not noticed it. And then I thought about, I was like, you know, I bought a bunch of stuff and some of the things I'd gotten were on clearance. So it probably all kind of seemed to make sense in the grand scheme of what I'd spent. Like maybe I had like a pair of $10 pants. Right. Something you thought was $25 was only $4. Exactly. Right. And so something that absolutely should have been $4 or maybe $8, you know, but definitely not $25, $24. And so I still have the receipt because it was a big purchase and I'd actually returned some things from it already. But now I've opened the mix like we're already cooking. And so I'm like, if these aren't good, I maybe I'll just take them back and say I didn't enjoy it because for twenty four dollars, big pan of bad banana bread. <laughs> yeah, like twenty four dollars. That's the <laughs> sort of you know concierge experience I expect. Right. Like and so we, we make the banana bread. It's very good. I like it so we like it surprisingly um, a, lot, a lot more than I expected. So we make the muffins that Naima leaves for her dad's house for a few days. The mix yields twelve servings. We ended up making about nine muffins, very nine very expensive muffins. And so <laughs> it's two fifty a muffin. You pay more than that at Starbucks. That's fair. Naima's like, don't eat all these muffins while I'm gone. I'm like, I'm not gonna eat all these <laughs> banana muffins while you're gone. So I realized uh, that Naima would be coming back and there were not many. I did save one, but that I had not done a good job of keeping banana muffins around for her. So I go online to see like, well, maybe there's some other company. Maybe I can get them cheaper somewhere else. Maybe they just cost too much at Nordstrom Rack. Okay. So what I was supposed to have gotten for $23.97 was a three pack of muffins. Uh... I don't know where the other two muffin packs went. I wish that I could go to North. I thought I seriously considered going back to Nordstrom Rack with my empty muffin bag and my receipt. Like, look, this was not supposed to be $23.97. And I know that we ate them, but you all owe me some more muffins. Uh, But I'm not going to do that. What I did do was order the three pack online. So as Allison said, yes, I or Dan said, I do get all of my banana bread from Nordstrom Rack. If you are also interested in Gonanas, a vegan, gluten-free banana bread mix, which is absolutely delicious. We will link to it in the show notes. That's my recommendation this week. It is worth $7.97 for sure. Uh, Way to kill two birds with one stone, hitting a a fail (laughs) and a recommendation in one shot. And I sort of think you should go back to Nordstrom Rack and give it your best shot. I just think the purchase wasn't the fail. The fail is telling Naima, poor Naima, that you'd save the muffins for her and then devouring them all. (laughs) I just, I expected so much more of myself. 
And <laughs> it was like 20, it was like 48 hours later. I was like, oh man. But you know what I, what I did wrong? I was going to put them in the freezer. That's where I failed. Because if I put them in the freezer, that additional like 90 seconds of defrosting time would have given me a pause. You know, like I couldn't just eat them instantly. Yeah. All right. Well, glad to know about this product that I will also purchase at my local Nordstrom Rack. Your number one outlet for banana bread. It is worth, again, $7.97, hands down. All right. I've got a fail. So yesterday, Harper got some mail. It was a letter from the Arlington Library. I opened it up thinking, oh, I wonder if she's like graduated to some kind of (laughs) older person library card. Uh, But no, it was an overdue notice, which was surprising to me because libraries around here, like a lot of libraries have last summer, eliminated late fees completely as a way of like ensuring equity in the library system. Um, So I was pretty surprised to get a library fine at all. That seemed weird. But then I was extra surprised when I saw the amount of the fine, which was $184.31 or seven packs of banana bread. Um, And I could not believe my eyes when I saw that number. The letter listed eight books that had due dates like last September. And they were charging Harper the replacement cost for all eight books because they had just never come back. And I was like, well, this is fucking easy. We didn't go to the library last summer. Could you even go to the library last summer? Everything was closed last summer. I will just call them on the phone and this whole thing will just go away. But then I was looking at the titles and I was like, fuck, some of these titles look familiar. Why do they look familiar? So I go into Harper's room and I just show her the titles, not the part that says that she owes $184 and 31 cents. I say, does this, do these books look familiar to you? And she immediately just walks right over to her shelf and pulls one of them off and goes, yeah, here's one of them. It was an Arlington library book. It had the huge Arlington library sticker right on it. And I was like, where did you get this? And she goes, I don't know. It just showed up in my room. Uh, I liked it. It's really good. How did I get it? So as far as I can tell someone by someone, I mean me or Alia, but probably me used the library's online checkout system and then drove to the library to pick up a bunch of books last summer, maybe before a vacation and then instantly wiped it from everyone's memory as if it had never happened. And the books just got mixed like back into the kids' shelves or in Lyra's case, into the, all the piles on her floor. And we never even thought about it a single time since that day in July or whenever. And because Arlington doesn't charge late fees, I guess maybe they never sent any kind of overdue notice at all until they decided the books were just obviously never coming back and they needed to get the money out of us. So last night we embarked on a full house search to see if we could find any more of these books. We found seven of the eight And the library will waive the replacement costs once we return them like normal people. But uh, the fail is this incredible, just A, that this whole thing happened that I have no memory of whatsoever, nor does anyone else in the family. And B, that I've already put this blot on my child's credit rating. Like she's age 13 and she's going to be sent to debtor's prison. And that seems unfair of me. So sorry, Harper, for that. This is just library for us. This is just like a regular <laughs> library cycle in our house. So don't feel too bad about it. That's true. You never open your mail, so you would never have known in the first place. I don't know if we left the Brooklyn Public Library system debt-free. I, I'm not 100% confident that we didn't maybe take a book or two. 
I don't think they extradite across state lines, but you might want to check before you before you register for any other library. All right, before we talk about your business, let's talk about our business. First of all, subscribe to the show. You're listening to the show already, but wouldn't it be great if instead of having to like go find the show, it was just in your phone? That's how subscribing to a podcast works. It's free. You don't have to pay anything. And then it just appears on your phone. It's amazing. But if you want no ads and a bonus segment with every single episode, sign up for Slate Plus. Today, we are going to be talking about the ridiculous cost of kids eating berries. Here's a sneak peek. This is not flattering to me, but I never really noticed unless I'm going somewhere like my if I'm going to visit my parents or my in-laws and they ask for like a grocery list beforehand. And I'm like, just a few things, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries (laughs) and strawberries. And then I'm like, this is a little high maintenance to hear segments like that. And to get ad free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Not only will you get zero Zippo, no ads on any Slate podcast. You'll also get bonus episodes for shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. You'll get bonus segments here on Mom and Dad are Fighting. And you'll be supporting all the work Slate does. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash plus and support our show today. To keep up with everything in the Slate Parenting Universe, sign up for the Slate Parenting Newsletter. Basically, it's just an email from me every week with a funny story in it. But also, I gather up all of Slate's great parenting content in one place, You can find it by signing up at slate.com slash parenting email. Finally, if you want to connect with other parents, join the Slate Parenting Group on Facebook. It's super active, it's super supportive, and it's super moderated, so assholes get booted. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, back to the show. Let's get into our listener question. It's being read, as always, by the majestical Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, My parents adore my children, and they eagerly offer to babysit whenever my husband and I need help. They bake pastries, play fun games, and make amazing science projects. However, my parents bicker and argue constantly, including in front of my seven- and three-year-old. It didn't seem like such a big deal when the kids were younger, but now my seven-year-old son is starting to ask them to please stop arguing. And when they're not around, he'll ask me, why is Gampy so mean to Nana? Recently, my son has started answering Nana in the same disrespectful tone that my father uses to speak to my mom. He even rolls his eyes when my admittedly eccentric mom tells meandering stories. To make matters worse, he has started complaining when I tell him Gampy and Nana are coming over, and he tells me he doesn't want to go to their house anymore. He asks to see my husband's parents instead of Gampy and Nana because they are nicer, which I take to mean that they show real affection for one another. I have already spoken to my parents about not yelling at each other in front of the kids, but these conversations just seem to start more arguments. Well, I told your dad to stop yelling, or you know how sensitive your mom is. Separately, my parents are amazing and positive role models, and it would pain me to have to cut ties with them because they love their grandchildren so dearly. 
It also would be nearly impossible for them to see my kids separately from one another, as they're always together. My mom doesn't drive, so she relies on my dad to bring her to my house. And because my dad has glaucoma, he does not like to make the drive to our house alone. (sighs) I have been dealing with my parents' constant bickering since I was young, and I have begged them to get divorced because they are obviously not happy together. But for some insane reason, they choose to stay married. Is there anything I can do to get through to them? Or are they just too old to change? Am I traumatizing my kids by allowing them to hang out with my bickering parents? Please help. Well, there are people that are committed to staying together no matter what. And if your parents' own unhappiness hasn't been catalyst enough to push them towards separation and you expressing uh, your concern many times over the years and begging them to separate hasn't worked, then I don't know that continuing to beat that drum will, but I think that there needs to be some expectations set around how your parents behave around your children. And I know that that can be difficult to do because we still, in many ways, can defer to our parents as authority figures. It's hard to have boundaries, period, let alone with the people who raised us. But you don't want your children to see this behavior and to believe that it's normal and healthy or acceptable um, or aspirational in any way. It isn't how you want them to know their grandparents. It isn't how you want them to know love and relationships. And I think that you should tell your parents, look, we, we either have to figure out a way that the children spend time with you all separately, or you have to pull it together when they're around. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to spend much time with them. I have a different feeling about this. Well, it may be colored by the fact that Dan actually, when he reached out to me to come fill in for Elizabeth, he was like, I have the perfect question for you. And when I read it, I was like, huh, (laughs) why does he think this is the perfect question for me? And I started to think maybe it's because I've talked a lot about sort of like the affectionate bickering that my husband and I partaken <laughs> uh, and also that you that you wrote a great piece for us about playing rummy cube with your parents and them going at each other so hard that you couldn't even like believe it my point is that that was in my mind and i think when i was reading this letter and so i feel like you know i'm not in the room but some of the ways that she phrased the lines and the questions talking about bickering and eye rolling i i felt like there is some affection between these Two people still, it doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound like, you know, all at war in front of her kids. And if I'm right, then I think, you know, your parents probably are not going to change. I think you're right, Jamila, that she should continue talking to her parents and talking to them, not just about like your fighting is, you know, this needs to change, but like really about how it is focusing the conversation on how it's impacting the grandkids, how it makes the grandkids feel, not whether it's right or wrong, whether it's okay to fight or not, who's right or who's wrong in the actual fights, but just like what it's doing to the kids. But also I do think as long as it's not like scary, abusive yelling or like very one-sided and cruel, I think you need to normalize fighting a bit for your kids. Like instead of saying, I know it's awful when Gampy and Nana fight and I wish they would stop. You can talk about how sometimes when people love each other, they get exasperated with each other. And when they're in long relationships, uh, maybe even more so. And are there times that you and your sister fight or that you get very mad at me and yell at me, even though you love me uh, or your friends? Um, You know, adults obviously have to be the adults in the room. But I also think like it's okay for kids to know that 
adults are humans. And that includes arguing. I was really struck by that line in the letter about, I don't know why they just haven't gotten divorced and I wish they get divorced forever. Like, isn't it possible that they, they do really actually love each other and that's why they're still together. Not just because they're hard headed or despite you personally, letter writer. I mean, and that this is just their way of dealing with each other. As Allison said, it's hard for us to know what the vibe actually is. It's hard to know whether the letter writer is dampening things for the purposes of the letter to avoid making it seem uh, maybe as bad as it is. I will say, Allison, you mentioned, unless it's really one-sided, it does seem like the situation is a little bit one-sided. Like throughout the letter, there's threaded clues that it's not exactly that they're both bickering. It's like the dad is kind of a dick to the mom. Maybe she gets him just as good. I don't know. But like, that seems to be where it begins. Remember the kid says, why is Gampy so mean to Nana? Yeah. Right. Right. So through the letter, you see these little clues that it's maybe not two-way bickering, maybe so much as one-way haranguing. Um, And that, I think, is worth thinking about a little bit differently. But I do think, in some respects, it's worth it to help kids make their way through situations and relationships between adults that are different than the ones that they're used to, that are different than the one between you and your spouse, letter writer. Um, And as long as it isn't something that is like truly abusive to find ways to talk to them about it that aren't only about how bad that this is. I will also say if it really is truly driving you insane and if it really does feel to you, letter writer, like it's it's not just like loving bickering, it's way worse than that and maybe you didn't like quite give it all up in the letter, it's worth it to consider the possibility that for the, you know, maybe the next six months in your relationship with your parents, you might need to forego the babysitting. This, this wonderful thing you have where they just come and take care of kid, carry your kids while you go out and do something else. If you really want to try and change this a little, you, you might need to do away with that and make their interactions with the kids one-on-one solo interactions. And the only way really to make that happen, given what you describe, uh, you know, with your parents driving and the fact that they're always together is that they come, one grandparent is with the kids and one is with you and you take them somewhere else to have some one-on-one time. And during that one-on-one time, you can talk to them as Allison and Jamila both suggested about how these things influence their relationships with the children and how the children are viewing them. But yeah, doing it with an eye toward hopefully changing them is probably not the route. The most you can hope for is for them to check themselves a little before it gets too bad when the kids are in the room and save all their really good fighting for when they get home. The point about kind of engineering a circumstance where one grandparent is with the kids and the other is with you, it sounds like, you know, a pain, but it's much preferable to like the two options being either keep it like this or my kids can't see their grandparents anymore. That seems like the worst case scenario possible. Especially because the letter writer stresses how great they are with the kids. Right. You know, this isn't a case where you're just like gritting your teeth because you feel like kids should have a relationship with their grandparents, no matter how bad they are. They're like great grandparents. It's just that they yell at each other a lot. It's important that when you do have this conversation, you know, if you choose to have it, um, that you mention specifically how your children or at least one of them seems to perhaps seized upon how Grampy uh, speaks to Nana. Right. Like, I, I don't there are not many kids that are happy with the idea of someone being mean to Nana. 
You know what I mean? And so like that, that, that if there is a, you know, play fighting or a playful fighting dynamic at hand, like they have to understand that kids are not sophisticated enough to really understand that. And even with you trying to explain it and saying, hey, I know it may look you know, one way, but it's actually that it's still important that they're not seeing too much of this because they can't really process that yet. And the last thing you want to normalize is the idea of um, feeling like it's okay to treat someone badly if they're if they're perceiving this as bad treatment, right? Like if the, if that is how they are seeing this, then you don't want them to think it's okay to be treated badly or to treat someone unkindly in a relationship. What's your guys' advice if like if the letter writer is really downplaying this and actually it's like legitimately horrible i mean that's different i still think given the line about all caps separately they are wonderful great role models (laughs) that they should try the model that you're talking about i mean you know they should get their parents into therapy like there are lots of things that they could do but i i think the goal here isn't to save their parents marriage or to improve that you know improve their parents marriage it's to develop a healthy relationship between grandparents and grandchildren and so yeah they might have to like put themselves in the middle of that a bit and split them up for the visits. I think if this is a situation that's really that kind of like volatile or scary or, you know, if the letter writer is holding back here, then I think it's incredibly important that you remove that from the kid's line of sight and that they experience your parents separately and that your parents understand why this is happening and that, you know, that this is something that we find to be very uh, unhealthy for our children. And it's really important that you understand what you are exposing our kids to and and perhaps that can be of use to you in terms of thinking about what a long-term solution looks like for your parents but you know as everyone has said it is unlikely that they are going to um change the terms of their relationship i think the greatest aspiration here is for them to get a filter all right letter writer thank you for writing in about this Um, and please send us an update we want to know how this goes if you start to have these conversations um if you start to have these solo times and whether they have the ability to install that filter i'm really curious uh send us an update mom and dad at slate.com and everyone else if you have a question you want us to chew on email us mom and dad at slate.com if it's about yelling i'll bring in our special yelling correspondent allison benedict Uh, or you can post it to the slate parenting facebook group just search for slate parenting on facebook.com this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too enter the name your price tool from progressive the name your price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds you tell progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, let's move on to our next segment. If you've got kids, you certainly remember how hectic and crazed that very first year was. You've got sleeplessness, you've got feeding worries, trying to figure out how to work and have a kid, maybe PPD, above all of it, that just the knowledge that everything has changed irrevocably for your family and trying to figure out what that means. So now imagine that, except for also it's the pandemic. 
what has that been like for new parents in the year 2020, 2021? We are joined by Dr. Tova Walsh, a professor of social work at the University of Wisconsin, who's just finished a study on this very question. She talked to dozens of March 2020 moms to hear their stories of a very unusual first year of parenthood. Hi, Tova. Hi, Dan and Jamila and Allison. Thanks so much for joining us. So now this question is not, uh, pardon the expression, sorry, but it's not merely academic to you because you are also a new pandemic mom, right? That's right. So this is personal as well as academic for me. Tell us about your baby and when that baby was born. Uh, so my baby, my daughter Lily, was born March 24, 2020. Uh, the day before she was born, our governor announced a safer at home order would go into effect, which did go into effect the day we brought her home from the hospital. Uh, so it was a pretty turbulent start for her. So you talked to a whole bunch of moms who gave birth in March 2020, like you. Tell us a little bit about what kinds of stories you heard from them, particularly about those first chaotic months in their child's lives and in our pandemic lives. So the stories that I heard from the moms I spoke to really underscored for me how distinct that moment was in March. So babies have been born now for a year during a pandemic, but the moms that I spoke to had things changing all around them right as they gave birth. So mothers described going into the hospital and things were pretty normal. And in the time that they were there, you know, news unfolding outside in the world and even within the hospital, um, things changing in a big way. So nurses coming into the room and saying, you know, you should be sure your partner doesn't leave. If he leaves, I'm not sure he'll be allowed back in. Uh, nurses saying, you know, I don't want you to be alarmed, but we're going to be wearing some new equipment that you've probably never seen before. And then coming into the room in forms of PPE that people had never seen before and that, you know, look like something out of a, out of a movie that you would see in a really scary situation. People described going home from the hospital on streets that were usually really busy and they were just eerily quiet because lockdowns had gone into effect while they were in the hospital. So it was just really jarring in terms of feeling like just as their baby was born, just the world had changed. And some people described it as feeling actually more like the world was ending. What did moms tell you about what happens to them when anxiety gets so amped up in those first months, which were already there's so much stressful stuff going on. Yeah, so definitely anxiety was really amped up for moms during that time. And I, you know, I share that feeling uh, with the moms that I interviewed. And so, you know, what moms described was just a, a really, um, compound effect of having all the usual worries of if it, especially if it's a first baby just how am I going to keep this tiny fragile human alive and then you know not understanding at all kind of how to gauge risk anymore in this world that was changing so quickly as we were you know taking in information about the pandemic but still at that point didn't really know much about you know how it spread or how we could protect ourselves or protect our infants and had this sense of our babies as being so vulnerable you know so lots of moms described just you know, you're up all night feeding and then you're you're doom scrolling, you're on your phone, you're reading these things that are terrifying. Um, and then, you know, added to that was the fact that lots of the things that moms would usually do to take care of themselves became inaccessible. So, you know, the friend that I would usually reach out to to take a walk, for example, moms would tell me, you know, couldn't do that. You know, I would, would have liked to go and see a therapist, but that was off limits. And I was at home in a tiny space where there was, you know, no privacy, even if telehealth was an option, really nowhere to do that, where I wouldn't also, you know, hear a crying baby or hear my spouse, like couldn't find a space to do that. Um, you know, so moms just talked about struggling really profoundly. It was really striking to hear how just how many impacts there were on mental health. So there was, you know, there was the pandemic, there was parenting, there was assessing risk, there was 
all the sources of support and comfort that they were looking for being cut off, whether it was family, whether it was professionals, uh, just a lot of, you know, things hitting at once. And uh, for some moms, that was very, very difficult. Thinking about uh, support, you know, um, and how that might have changed from even before you've left the hospital, right? Like, I don't know that uh, you all were able to have a breastfeeding class with the nurse or even have the photographer come in and take pictures, some of those traditional in the hospital rituals, let alone like having friends come by to watch the baby while you and your husband go for a walk or, you know, coming and sitting around so you can clean the house or any number of things. I'm curious to know of those mothers that you spoke to, how many of them decided to take the risk when they could and say, I just really need some help. I can't do this anymore. I have to break outside of, you know, my bubble or my pod or I don't have a pod. I just, you know, I'm getting help where I can take it. Or were most of them very strict and in terms of adhering to recommendations around COVID? Right. That's a great question. So it was really a mix. And, you know, I should say that I was interviewing moms from around the country. So experiences also really varied depending on where people were. So if you were in a city that was really an epicenter of the virus and, you know, you had a lot of, um, you know, close contacts who were getting ill and you were hearing those things up close and personal, then people were really hunkered down in those situations. Um, you know, for people in other parts of the country, it was really a mix of people being very, very cautious. And sometimes that had to do, you know, with feelings of anxiety. And, and just feeling like I need to just stay as hunkered down as I can to protect my baby. Sometimes, um, you know, it was circumstances allowing that, you know, so a parent who had a reasonable amount of leave or a partner who also had some leave, it felt doable. And so they could do that, you know, and then there were mothers who, um, you know, felt like they needed to get some support for their own mental health or they had older kids and they had to work and kids' schools were closed and they have an infant and they're not sleeping and it's just, you know, nearly impossible, you know, and what was really striking was hearing some stories from some of those moms who sought help, you know, just how difficult it was to access help. You might reach out and, and try to find some help and find most of those avenues cut off. Or in one case, I spoke with one mom who kind of started off feeling like she was going to be as conservative as possible and then realized, you know, she needed to get some help. She wasn't going to make it. It wasn't sustainable how much she was doing to care for, um, you know, two very young children on her own during the pandemic and, and reached out to her own mom and, you know, and had to do a little bit of traveling to get there, but went to be with her parents and then got there. And shortly afterward, her mother was diagnosed for COVID and found herself you know, caring for, you know, a parent who was ill and then her mother was hospitalized and her father was falling apart. And here she is now caring for an infant and a toddler and not sleeping and being kind of radio control for the whole family since she was in town, you know, checking in to see how her mom was doing and then relaying that information to others. And um, just some of the stories I heard were just so overwhelming. And even when, you know, moms reached out for support, just how difficult it was to find support when so many people were in crisis. So I think one of the things, you know, that I think about when I, I you know, as I, I do this work is just, you know, it's always a huge life event to have a baby. And usually kind of people will rally around you as best they're able, but everyone was in crisis. And so some of the moms who, you know, made choices and felt comfortable seeking some help found it really difficult to access. It's so interesting because there were times during lockdown and now that you're describing all of this, it seems um, kind of delusional of me to have thought this or naive, but there were times during lockdown where I thought like, well, this would be the perfect time to have a baby because you're like, <laughs> you're stuck inside, you're nesting, you can just hang out with this kid and not have any other kind of, you know, pressures to go do things. But it doesn't sound like that's how it played out for many people. And I'm very curious about the sort of after the leave part, because mm -hmm. 
I remember with my kids, like that period of for for parents who work outside of the home when your when your maternity leave is over and you go back to work, like that separation. It's super hard at first, but it also seems really important to getting you to the other side. Like you actually, literally, you leave the house, you go yeah. commute, you you know see all these other people, and you slowly become that version of yourself again. I just wonder if you heard about what it was like to transition back to work for parents, you know, next to their baby's nursery and if that was different for them than the typical experience. Yeah, well, first I just want to go back to what you started with, Allison, just to mention that um, actually quite a few moms in my interviews said to me how many people had said to them, you know, this is such a perfect time, you know, in a way you're really lucky to be having a baby right now. Uh, you were probably just going to be at home anyway. It's kind of like quarantine when you have a new baby. And how for some moms that just became so difficult to hear over and over again when they were thinking, I am desperate for someone, you know, to come and give me a hug or someone to hold my baby. And, you know, just hearing time and again how lucky they were was a really tough thing. Thing. Um, although, you know, I can, I can see the thought process that gets you there, right? But it did not feel that way. And, and some people really found it hard to hear. But, you know, going back to your question, I think, you know, you're exactly right that it, it's always difficult to, to bring a baby on a first day to daycare or to, you know, to have that separation for the first time when you've been together continuously. And, you know, the moms that I interviewed talked about just how very much harder it was in the context of a pandemic. Um, you know, for many moms, they weren't allowed to visit or kind of go into the daycare. So some of the normal um, ways that you might ease that separation by, you know, going in with your baby and maybe visiting for a little bit one day before you go and drop them off or, you know, things along those lines weren't possible. The things you might do to reassure yourself just to get a feel for the room, kind of they couldn't do that. And in some cases, actually, one mom talked to me about, you know, feeling pretty confident that she'd found a great place and, you know, bringing her baby to the state care and getting things started and it seemed to be going well. And then, you know, seeing some pictures on Facebook that made it clear that the provider was not being honest about how much risk she was taking in her own life around COVID and feeling like she needed to pull her baby from that daycare. And this was in a situation with really limited daycare options. So, you know, what it then meant was it, it impacted her own work and her ability to work. And, and, you know, a lot of moms who really struggled with... Uh, disrupted daycare plans, you know, disrupting their own work lives, uh, juggling working from home and caring for an infant and trying to do it all. Uh, and people were just massively, massively overwhelmed who I talked to. Just, you know, at, at this point, I'm talking to them a year out. Some moms had been for a year caring for their child at home because they couldn't find a situation that felt safe out of the home. Uh, and others had their kids at daycare. But as one mom was saying, it feels like a decision. The daycare decision is one that you make every day. They were just constantly monitoring, you know, now rates are going up in my town. Should I be rethinking this? Is it still an okay thing to do? And um, so just lots of struggles about, you know, what was okay and what's the greater risk? Is it losing my job or is it having my child in an unsafe setting when both of those things would be harmful to my child and my family? New motherhood is always such a minefield in terms of understanding that you're being judged by everyone around you and feeling that way so strongly. Um, and it seemed like the pandemic also just gave new mothers, a new way to feel like they were being judged and also gave the people around them, uh, because we didn't understand risk and have trouble understanding the risk, new ways to condemn the things that they saw. That's right. And for some moms, these conversations were so fraught, even with family members, like maybe you had, you know, parents who were taking things less seriously than you were and trying to explain, you know, why you weren't comfortable with them, you know, flying and coming immediately to visit the baby. Um, you know, moms just described a lot of friction in their relationships with important people in their lives who they had imagined just, you know, being there and it being a really bonding time for everybody around the baby. But then there's this extra layer of, you know, feeling judged or feeling like you need to justify your decisions or kind of set these boundaries 
And to some extent, you know, these are kind of normative things that you kind of navigate with your own parents or with other people after having a baby that you're going to make your own decisions. But here the stakes felt so high that it just became really intense really quickly, I think, to be doing this. You even had a, a mom who was literally hemorrhaging and then in reaching out for help in the community, find out that even that was a way for to, for her to get judged. This was just such an unbearable story. It really, you know, haunts me. And I, I'm grateful to her for sharing it and for wanting it to be out in the world so that other moms, you know, don't feel as alone if they had similar experiences. But I, I did, as you're saying, talk to one mom who, you know, came home after a C-section and had two kids under two years old who she was parenting on her own for the most part since her husband had to continue working. Her recovery was really, um, you know, impeded by caring for being on her feet all the time and caring for her two little ones. And she found herself hemorrhaging and her doctor told her, you need to get some help. It doesn't matter if there's a lockdown, like you can't survive like this. And when she posted in a neighborhood um, group where people would post for childcare or for, you know, various kinds of things that you might post on a neighborhood listserv, uh, she really got shamed for breaking public health protocols during the pandemic. And here she was just trying to, you know, live through it. And she, you know, she described how even a year out, like it's, you know, she walks down the street and like, it's, it's hard to look neighbors in the eye after the way she was treated. Um, parents of, of much older children, seasoned parents have had a hard time keeping their kids occupied without having daycare or school to keep them busy. So when you're talking to these moms, what are they saying their days are like with their babies? Like have people who didn't intend to be tablet parents had to turn to the tablet to try and entertain a baby who really can't keep up with the tablet? Like what sort of things have they been doing to um, fill their child's time? A lot of the moms that I spoke with really just felt huge guilt around this, like had pictured kind of all the things that, you know, that they would be doing when they were with their child and that their child would be doing with other people when they were working that would all be, you know, supporting their baby's development. And then it came down to this kind of survival mode of I'm, I'm trying to, you know, keep my job and be with my baby and I can't 100% be, you know, engaged in doing, you know, stimulating developmentally appropriate activities with the baby every minute while I'm also, you know, on a conference call or, you know, sending something off that I got to send off. Um, and so moms felt pretty awful about that. And, you know, and I heard a lot of guilt around that. You know, one of the ways that some moms coped is just trying to do it all basically without sleep, you know, working when they could and working more after baby goes to sleep and trying to be on during the day and still somehow work at night. Um, you know, and of course that's not sustainable and they had to, you know, turn to screens more or just kind of, you know, figure out kind of things that they could engage their baby with so that they could be juggling and multitasking and getting their work done. And that was really, you know, a difficult, uh, a very difficult balancing act. Um, I think it was getting even harder as I talked to moms as, as this is the one year point. So, you know, so early on, you could kind of wear a baby and, you know, maybe, you know, some moms described, you know, being on the move, they would take all of their work calls kind of walking and the baby would sleep in the stroller or sleep on their chest if they were wearing them. But by the time I was talking to them with a one-year-old, it was becoming more and more difficult for those moms who hadn't figured out a sustainable childcare arrangement to continue working. And now they have a mobile child who you really need to keep up with and, and be engaged with in a different way. Let me just ask one last question. A year and one month out, how are you? Thank you. <laughs> you know, a year out, and I think the combination of the the anniversary of the pandemic and my daughter's birthday was, was hit me really hard. Um, it was really 
really sad <laughs> to realize, okay, really people aren't going to meet her as a baby, right? So my daughter hasn't met three out of her four grandparents, and she has one great-grandmother who we are so eager for her to meet. You know, I think throughout the year, as the year unfolded, like in March, I couldn't have imagined that a year and change later, she wouldn't have met, in March of 2020, I mean, wouldn't have met everyone by now. Um, and maybe that's just as well. That would have been such an unbearable thought. So it, you know, it, so it feels like the losses have kind of accumulated over the year. And so a year out, it's feeling... Both, I feel more aware of kind of all the loss now that I'm accepting that really a year has gone by and, and that's how it's going to be. And also kind of cautiously hopeful as I look ahead and having recently gotten, you know, my second shot and starting to think about how we can figure out a safe way to travel to go meet the great grandmother, you know, like I'm feeling a little bit hopeful and also just very aware of what we've lost that, you know, a year in the life of a baby, they change so much. That's, that's a time that, that we, you know, didn't get to share with a lot of people who are very important to us. Thank you very much for joining us, Tova. This is a great conversation, and I'm really glad you did this research. And good luck to you and your daughter and your family. This research is so new, it isn't even published yet. So, uh, listeners, you're getting your breaking parenting science news right here on a Mom and Dad are Fighting. Thank you again for doing this, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tova. Thank you. All right. Let's move on to recommendations. Jamila, you have already recommended a fabulous Nordstrom Rack banana bread and other associated bread flavors. Allison, what are you recommending? Okay, I'm going to recommend a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nyeri. So I don't really read with my kids anymore, both because they've gotten older and because honestly, the pandemic has just meant that we watch TV every night together instead of reading and then they go in their beds and read. Uh, but recently, Sam had a concussion and so he wasn't allowed to watch TV look at screens, read, or run around, which Jesus is like, what Christ. else is there? There's nothing else. He loves to read. And whenever he loves a book, then I search for a book that seems just like that book, and he never likes it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it never works. So finally, for the first time in like a year, we went to the bookstore and browsed up and down the aisles, and he picked this book just based on its cover. Anyway, then I Googled it, and it was, you know, beloved and well-reviewed. It's about a young Iranian refugee who moves to Oklahoma based on a true story, based on the on the author's life. And it takes you back and forth between um, Iran and and his life in Oklahoma. And it's really just beautifully written. It's really poetic. He's 10. And I think it's it's definitely challenging, but in a good way. And he I only read two chapters to him. And I just was so impressed with the writing. But he now is just every morning comes down and says, like, this is the best book I've ever read. Um, so I'm really recommending it based on his recommendation. Everything sad is untrue. I also like that it's a kid's book that has like a very adult title. Yeah, that's good. Doesn't everything sad is untrue sound like, you know, I don't know, super sad love story or something. Definitely sounds like something that you would find at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list yeah. for adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm recommending um, a essay on uh, romper.com by a writer named Lauren Bands, which is called I Was Told There Would Be Mom Friends, which I read just after we booked this interview with Tova, the, our researcher at the University of Wisconsin, about having a baby in the first year of the pandemic. Um, this is an essay about having a baby in the first year of the pandemic, but specifically about how Lauren, the author, was under the impression that all her friend-making difficulties as an adult would be solved the instant she had a baby because there would just be a world of mom friends she would meet and enjoy the company of. But in fact, thanks to the pandemic, 
uh, when she had a baby one year ago, she has been absolutely unable to do this thing that she had long dreamed of as sort of a corollary of parenting. Um, it's a very funny essay. It is not too heavy or too sad, but it does have a little bit of, of an undercurrent of uh, all the stuff that Tova was talking about in her interview about all the opportunities lost in this year. And I liked it a lot. It's really good. We'll put a link on the show page for this essay. I was told there would be mom friends. I've noticed more stuff on Romper lately that I've wanted to read. This is part of a big package they did on uh, pandemic parenting that also includes a really good uh, Lydia Kiesling essay and a bunch of other ones. And I do agree that they seem to be stepping up the editorial assigning of good essays to good people. So good job, Romper. All right, that's it for our show. One last time, if you got a question, email us, slate.com or post it to the Slate and Parenting Facebook group. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Allison Benedict, I'm Dan Kois. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.